from Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2 beginning in verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every name, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do um, thank you, we thank you, for the mercies that you have shown to us in Jesus, that while we were yet your enemies, that you demonstrated your love for us by having your Son die for us. We thank you, God, for the humility that was demonstrated in his lowering self himself and not regarding equality with God, I think, to be grasped, but gave himself in obedience to you for us. I pray, Father, that our hearts will just again be turned to you and that we, Lord, as your love has been poured out in our hearts, that we would love you as you've loved us. Speak to us, Lord, again. Direct us and minister to us, God, as we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. You can turn back to um, 2 Samuel chapter 15, where we'll be this morning. And I want to again just say thank you for um, last Sunday and, and the um, just a overwhelming um, kindness and generosity that you all showed to me with the potluck, all the brisket, wonderful, and um, the new gun, wow, it's great. I know our Canadians and German students, they're just um, totally impressed by that. That um, get a gun, you know, as an appreciation gift here in Texas. Great gift. I really do appreciate it. And, um, and the, thank, the um, gift card to Academy that received today, thank you, and other various notes and things. I just really appreciate it a lot. Um, I can't help but, but just think of the way, many ways that God has, has blessed me over the years and and one that in particular is just good friends. And I have been very blessed throughout my life to have had always not a lot of friends, but, but good, good friends. And um, it's a gift from God. This passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at here, starting in chapter 15, is about really the friends and enemies of David. We were, after last Sunday, we drove down to see um, our son Nathan 
and his wife Davina and the grandkids. And, and Davina has in one of the rooms there a sign that says, a friend is someone who knows the song of your heart. And then the rest of the plaque says, and who can sing the words back to you when you forget them. You know, that's a great little saying. A friend is someone who knows the song on your heart and who can sing the words back to you when you've forgotten them. Proverbs tells us that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There are so many just wonderful statements in Scripture about friendship. A friend is there um, through all times, thick and thin. But we also can have enemies. And this chapter begins with one of David's sons, his eldest son, Absalom, becoming his enemy. And it's really a story of betrayal. And um, there is no greater pain than the pain of betrayal. A betrayal is not something that an enemy can do. You, have to, you can only be betrayed by someone that you love and that you've experienced their love. So enemies don't betray us. It's our friends, our loved ones, our family that betray us. And David in this chapter and in the following chapters will be betrayed by two very close people. One, his son, and the other, a friend, a counselor, Ahithophel. Really, really hurt him. Um, came across a few quotes about betrayal. Family betrayal, one person said, is to me the most heartbreaking kind. Because if you can't trust your family to love you and protect you, who can you really trust? Another said it never comes from enemies. One person said, be careful who you share your weaknesses with. Some people can't wait for the opportunity to use them against you. Another person said, breaking someone's trust is like crumbling up a piece of paper. You can smooth it over, but it's never going to be the same again. When we think over history, it's interesting how much um, it is stories of betrayal that often come to mind with, with um, Judas, for example, the one who betrayed his friend and his savior. Even with Shakespeare, when he wrote about Julius Caesar, and we know that it was Brutus, the close friend of Caesar, who was one of his betrayers and who, with the rest of the Senate, stabbed him, killed him. And Caesar said, you too, Brutus? And it goes on and on, and it's, there's just no greater pain than the pain of a close friend family member who turns against us. Proverbs says, many proclaim their loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Another person said, it's easier to forgive an enemy than it is to forgive a friend because of that betrayal. So as chapter 15 of 2 Samuel starts, it says, now it came about after this, and the this is that David however superficial it might have been, he has welcomed his son back. And 
he is the son. Absalom is now back in the kingdom and living life as he lived before he murdered his brother. But Absalom seems to have a deep-seated resentment toward his dad. And he won't let it go. And he hangs on to it year after year. And he begins to plot his father's downfall and his own rise to the throne. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. He's exalting himself. He's promoting himself. He's advertising himself. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Absalom's little brother, Adonijah, is going to do the same thing, just, just copying his brother. And when Adonijah seeks to exalt himself as king, he will take a chariot and, 50, and, and horsemen and 50 runners, and they will run through the town promoting Adonijah. Same thing that Absalom is doing here. And Absalom used to rise early and stand before, beside the way of the gate. And it happened that when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes in Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause would come to me, and I would give him justice. And it happened that when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put, on, put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. This is a plotting, usurping man. He has one ambition here. Get his father off the throne and get himself on it. The king's primary role was the role of judge. People came to him on a daily basis as court was in session to present their case and have the king decide it on their behalf. Absalom would head them off. Before they ever had a chance to go to the king, Absalom would meet with the people and say, what's going on? Tell me your problem. And they'd say, oh, I wish I were your king. I could settle this for you. I would give you justice. People would start to bow before him because he's the king's son. He'd pick him up and kiss him. You don't need to do that. And he was seducing the people, stealing their hearts away from his father. He was evil. We're told in verse 7 that it came about at the end of 40 years. That's probably a, a textual problem. It, it more likely was four years. And there's a note in your Bible more, more than likely to that effect. At the end of four years of doing this, that Absalom said to the king, Please let me now go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord at Hebron. And that will set the stage for him to announce himself as king. Four years. Slowly, steadily, turning the hearts of the people away from the king and toward himself. They say that all is fair in love and war. How many times we've heard stories or maybe been 
victims of it where we've had a friend who has been stolen away, their affection stolen away from us by another friend. And maybe their motives weren't to hurt us, but it happened nonetheless. It's a deep kind of pain that can last a lifetime. Absalom was prepared to kill his father. I can't imagine a greater pain. Raising a son that wants you dead. He was patient, plotting, and scheming. He was heartless, and cold, and calculating. This is an evil man. He was ambitious, selfless, selfish, and covetous. It's the kind of man that we think of when that statement that says, no good deed is left unpunished. The father showed mercy to him. He deserved to die for what he had done. And now the father's compassion and mercy is being rewarded with this kind of evil. He is a man preoccupied with perceived injustice to himself, and he is unable to see or care about the wrong that he is guilty of. As I thought about Absalom, the thing that is probably most disturbing that put him on this path is the unforgiveness where he has refused to recognize his own sin and the mercy that's been shown to him. But it's also the ambition. There's a place for ambition, but most of the time, it is so twisted up with selfishness and, and, and an absence of love. Where the one thing that ambition often has driving it is just love for self. I read from Philippians chapter 2 this morning because it is the total contrast to Absalom. Jesus was not ambitious for himself. He was not self-seeking not seeking to gain for himself, not seeking to advance himself or to promote himself. The self-willed, the ambitious, as much as the world may herald it, they are enemies of the king. Because our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not self-willed and he is not ambitious. The only thing he was ambitious for was for the Father to be glorified in his life. That was his one ambition. The Father be glorified and to live in unbroken fellowship with him. Everything else was subservient to that. Those who promote themselves demote Jesus. Those who elevate themselves Lower Christ. Those who advance self attack Christ. In proclaiming self, they denounce Christ. That attitude is absolutely contradictory to the person of Jesus. 
God has given us all gifts, talents, abilities. And in faith, in surrender to him, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make the most of those to the glory of God. I have a friend who is a student at His Hill, and, and he is the, um, he's a fine, godly man. He is the business manager at one of our Bible schools now in Germany. And I'll never forget um, having a Coke with him at Dairy Queen a number of years ago, and he was unsure whether or not to continue the educational track that he was on. He knew he was able wasn't an issue of academic ability. It was just an, more of an issue of, do I want to be in school for another two or three years? And he couldn't see how the end would result in ministry. And I just encouraged him. I said, you know, God's given you this ability, and he's given you this opportunity. Even if you can't see how it's going to result in ministry, per se, you know it's not something that's immoral and you are responding to the giftings and abilities that God's given you. As long as you pursue this in humility, just wanting your life to be a vessel for his use, I would strongly encourage you to continue to pursue this. And now God has him in a place where he is such a vital team member and he is really being used because he has the abilities that he has because of the training that he received. But he's not an ambitious man. He's not seeking to promote himself and to exalt himself. He simply wants to be available to what the Lord has for him. It's about Jesus being elevated, not self. When we advance ourselves, we are attacking Christ. We are lowering him. This man, Absalom, was a conspirator. He was conspiring to bring another down and to advance himself. I don't live in the secular world, but this is not a heart attitude that is relegated to the secular world, limited to that. It's even in ministry, where you see men that are always looking for the next better opportunity, one where their name would be held up higher or more money coming in. They're conspiring to elevate themselves, and many times others are being hurt and wounded in the process. It is hard to adequately portray how horrible this sin of ambition is. How hurtful, how disloyal it is toward Christ and to, the, to those that he puts in our lives. And so Absalom comes to his father and says, I want to go to Hebron and pay my vow. And David says, okay. And Absalom took several hundred people with him. 
And then he says, I'm going to blow the trumpet down there. A trumpet will be blown. I'm going to be announced as king. You should be ready for that, telling the people with him. Verse 10. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent to Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city in, in Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong. For the people increased continually with Absalom. Ahithophel is the second conspirator here. And a good friend of David's. This may be the one that David was speaking of when he said in Psalm 55, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal. My companion and my familiar friend, we had sweet fellowship together. We walked in the house of God in the throng. Psalm 41, David says much the same when he says, Even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He has a son that wants him dead and his close friend who is in league with with the son. Ahithophel may have been the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he may be another man who has just been nursing a grudge, waiting for the opportunity to stick the knife into David's back. Resentful over what David did to Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And now all these years later, here's his opportunity. These are not good men. David, ever the warrior, he understands immediately the danger that he's in, though he didn't see it coming. And when a messenger comes to him in verse 13 and says, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom, David immediately went into warfare mode. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from the hand of, of Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring, us down, bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David came to the, to the quick assessment that not only will Absalom kill me, he'll kill as many people in this city as he can. We can't defend this city. We're going to bring bloodshed down on innocent people in this city. We will flee. So he abandoned the city, fled for his life so he could be in a better position to fight back against Absalom. Verse 15, Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. And we have the first of David's friends. So the king went out and all of his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. David wasn't worried that the house was going to gather dust in his absence. David left these ten women behind because he was making a statement that he was not abdicating the throne. He left family members behind, concubines behind. It was a public statement saying, I have left the city I have not given up the throne. It was a clear message. 
Don't mistake what I, my actions of leaving the city for giving up my right to rule. Everybody understood what this meant. And so the king left, and he stopped at the last house outside the city, and those that were with him and loyal to him passed by in front of him. Verse 18, Now all of his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. These are the 600 men that have been with him for most of the time before he was even king, while he was running from Saul. They are loyal people. And none of them are Israelites. Isn't that something? See, Israel is turning against David. Not just Ahithophel, not just Absalom, but Israel is turned against the king. And those that stand with him now are not even Israelites. Cherethites, Pelethites, Gittites from Gath, the Philistine territories. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite from Gath, Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only recently, yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives. This is a confession of faith. This is very similar to what Ruth says to Naomi when Naomi tried to get Ruth to stay back in Moab. As the Lord lives, this is a believing man. And as my Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. We know often the true significance of our friends when we go through the hardest times in life. This is David's lowest time in life. And these friends start to rise to the surface. A son is betraying him. His counselor is betraying him. But this Gentile, Ittai, I will die with you. And David said, pass over with me. Verse 24, second true friend. Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying, all, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abathar came up until all the people had finished passing the city. And then the king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I have found favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show, it, and show me both it and his habitation. So David didn't regard the ark as a superstitious good luck charm as Saul had done and the Philistines had done. But if he should say, Thus I have no delight in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. And the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Or in other words, a prophet? Zadok was more than a priest, he was also a prophet of God. Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, your son Ahimaaz, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar, 
See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So David's had these two men stay back so that he could have spies within the administration of Absalom to tell him what was going on. And Zadok, at great risk to himself and to his sons, was loyal to David and took up that role to be part, to stay back and give information to David. Verse 30, And David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot, a sight of mourning and grief over the condition that he's in. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and wept and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. It happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai, the archite, met with him with his coat torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. If you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priests with you there? So it shall be that whatever you shall hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. And Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So another friend who's staying with him. Later, at the end of chapter 17, when David's trying to cross the Jordan River, all of his family with him, the 600 men that are with him, they had to get across that night or Absalom would come and strike them all down. And we're told in chapter 17, verse 27, three more friends of David. And when David had come to Mononim, Shobai, the son of Nahash, and from Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, Machar, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim. They came, and they brought food and provisions, and they spent the night getting David across that river. Good friends, loyal friends, and foreigners, almost every one of them. With the exception of Zadok and Abathar, Every one of the friends of David mentioned in these chapters were not from Israel. It would seem that there are some <clears throat> parallels and analogies here to Christ himself. John chapter 1 says that he came to his own, and his own received him not. When we receive the Lord Jesus we become enemies of this world, aliens and strangers to this world. And like David's friends, our Savior is a king who is not accepted by this world. He's rejected, despised, and seems to be unable to, at times, to even defend himself. And those who ally themselves with him are very likely to be killed for that allegiance. 
But who are we going to identify with? I appreciate Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, where he speaks about yearning for Christ and wanting to lay hold of him. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We will never have a better friend than Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you slaves, servants. I call you my friends. And I fully disclose everything to you. That is an awesome thing. To think that Jesus Christ, creator of this universe, would look at you and me and say, Friend. Absolutely loyal. He will never betray us. That's why the scripture says those who place their hope in him will never be disappointed. That is a friend. Every other friend we have at some time in life is very likely to disappoint us. Jesus is the one exception. And it's an amazing thing that not only being our friend... He wants our friendship. The God who needs nothing wants my friendship and yours. I think Paul understood that. And just as David's friends were willing to die with him, it was a hopeless cause for all practical purposes when David left that city. Israel had turned toward Absalom. It was the nation against that man. And people who didn't even, weren't even part of the nation, but they had the same faith as David. Not the same blood, not the same race or heritage, but the same faith. So we'll stand with this man, even if it means we die. And Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm not a fair-weather friend who only wants him when I can know his power. But I want him even if it means fellowshipping with his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not all are this way, even among Christians. Not all of Jesus' friends are friends with him. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. David's friends loved him well. 
They were prepared to love him to the end. John says that Jesus gathered up a towel, girded himself about, prepared to wash his disciples' feet. And in that paragraph it says, he loved them to the end. What a friend. Loyalty is an amazing thing. That kind of friendship that will stay with a person through thick and thin. How can we be that loyal to another? I think it begins with humility. It's understanding our own weakness, frailty, and sin. I'm much less likely to give up on someone else when they have sinned, if I'm honest about my own sin. Humility breeds loyalty. It is pride that breeds betrayal. Absalom was a proud man, not a humble man. These Gentile dogs that stood with David, humble men who knew their God and shared the same faith with David. But Jesus is not loyal to us because he understands his sin. He is without sin. Jesus is loyal because he is love. And love endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. God is love. And how can we claim to love and become the enemy, the persecutor, the betrayer, the one who wants to see the downfall of another, to see his sins exposed, to see him get his just dues? It's not love. Sadly, we probably all have one or more people in our lives that that's how they think toward us. Jesus understands our weaknesses. He was himself tempted in every manner in which a person can be tempted. But he was without sin. Sometimes it's difficult to accept the friendship of another. Sometimes we doubt people's friendship and heart for us, their loyalty for us, because we see them as being too good. Jesus is truly good, and he truly loves us and is loyal to us. Can we accept that someone who has never sinned as we have can be loyal and faithful without being condescending or judgmental. I ask that question because there's been times when I've had that presented to me or I've presented it to somebody else. I don't know that you can really forgive me, that you can really love me if you can't personally experience and understand what I have done. It's nonsense. 
None of us are without sin. Jesus is the only one who's without sin. But he loves us perfectly without having had to sin. He understands us and is loyal to us. It is our own corruption of heart that would cause us to think that only those who have failed can love us and be loyal to us without being smug. There's no smugness in Jesus' love. Pure love. Pure grace. While being totally free of any wrongdoing in his own person. got to be one of the saddest chapters in all of Scripture for David to have had his own son desire his death, to have one of his best friends turn against him and plot his death. But David, as he looked back on this, would have also had to realize the grace that was being shown to him. And these seven friends that are mentioned, Quite amazing. And truly by the grace of God. And I just want us to be encouraged in working through this passage a little bit that I have. It, it, it is about friends and enemies. But it's not so that we would look at just relationships that we have and say, who are my friends and who are my enemies? But like all of God's word, to bring us to himself and to remember that the scripture says that we were the enemies of God. And he gave his son for us. And we are now the friends of God. And he will never leave us or forsake us. Even as David's friends stayed with him, Jesus will never leave or forsake us. He is our friend. Moreover, he's looking for friends. It's so easy to know for me to just focus on what Jesus is to me and not give thought to what he wants me to be to him. Friendship should be met with friendship and not taken for granted. We will never have a better friend than Jesus. And he is looking for those who will love him as he has first loved us. I'll close this in prayer.